I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We started um, a series a couple of weeks ago on the seven letters, the, uh, the words that Jesus spoke to John on the Isle of Patmos. And the messages contained in those letters have relevance to us today. Now, I know that there's teaching out there. You may have heard some of it too about how that, that each of these seven letters to the churches represents a different aspect or time period or church uh, period of time during the church age and stuff like that. And, and I think the things that are written to the all seven churches apply to the church in any age. Um, but Jesus is talking to specific churches. He's talking to specific people, to the angels of the churches he writes, uh, or tells John to write, and those are the those uh, uh, angels are direct. The word angel is a direct reference to the pastors of those churches, and he's uh, uh, he shows that he's concerned about what's going on in the churches. I take great comfort in that because I believe God's concerned about what's going on in this church. Now we talked a little bit about uh, well, actually, for a couple of weeks we talked about the letter to the church at Ephesus because we have more information about the the city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus, the founding of the church at Ephesus, and and some of the background information uh, during the time of Paul uh, from the book of Acts of any of the other churches. So we have a little bit more uh, foundation, if you will, to work from regarding the church at Ephesus than we do the others. But I, there are some things that uh, uh, that I left unsaid about the church at Ephesus. So I'd like to tie up some loose ends with, uh, with that church and then we'll move on to the church at Smyrna this morning. So I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 2. Remember, Jesus has appeared to John not like you saw him on the earth, but his hair is white like snow and his eyes are flames of fire. And um, uh, he, he's appearing as the conqueror. And he says in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, under the angel of the church of Ephesus, we know this is Timothy, right. These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlestick. The seven stars are the, the seven pastors of these churches, and the golden candlesticks are the churches themselves. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Let me remind you that uh, that this word "somewhat" is not in the original. It, uh, if if you, well, it's always seemed to me. Maybe it does the same to you. It's always seemed to me that he says, "Boy, you guys have got it on on target. You're doing everything, but there's just one little thing." But this is not a one little thing. This is a big thing. He says, "Nevertheless, I have." This against you. You've left your first love. It's a big deal because it's going to cost them if they don't fix it. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Sounds like a pretty big deal. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the, church, the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, we've, uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. 
and, uh, and cover ground that we've already gone over. But let me just remind you that the, the, uh, of the, the basics, the major points. First of all, they, the church at Ephesus has been real, 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 real strong on doctrine. And Jesus commends them for that. We looked at a lot of the things that Paul wrote to Timothy, who becomes the pastor of the, the church at Ephesus, who was left to, uh, to pastor from, uh, uh, after Paul's visit, one of Paul's visits. And, uh, and Paul talks to him over and over and over about doctrine. His last visit with the elders of the church at Ephesus, he talked to them about how the grievous wolves were going to come in after he leaves and try to uh, destroy the church. And there would be people that would rise up from among them, which they did, to, uh, to spread false doctrine and, and so forth. So they've done a great, 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 great job of being strong on doctrine. But that's not enough. He said, you left your first love. Now, what is their first love? Their first love is their relationship with Jesus, their love for Jesus, and the love that Jesus has shown to others as well. In other words, first love means loving God and loving others. That's what Jesus said was the first and the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's what they've gotten away from. They've become so doctrine conscious, apparently, that they got away from the, the principles of love. Now, notice, you say things like this, and some people say, yes, we just need to love one another. We don't need all that teaching. We don't need all that emphasis on the word. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, now, back up on that doctrine stuff and just have kumbaya meetings. <laughs> He's commended them for their strength in doctrine. He just said, don't let it cost you. The love that you have toward others, the love that you share toward others. Now, notice he says that there, and he says this to all the churches. There are certain uh, elements that, uh, of the, the messages or the letters that he gives to each church that are consistent. And then there are some things that he says to most of the churches, but not all of them. One of the things that, uh, that's contained in all of these letters is a promise for overcoming. Now, the overcoming in their case is to repent from what they've, what they used to be, repent from not showing the love toward others that they used to, and therefore the love toward God. You can't love God if you don't love others. So he says, repent from that, and here's the promise that, that uh, is available to you, if you will. He says, to him that overcometh, the last part of verse 7, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, what is that talking about? It's talking about fellowship or communion with him. And almost every one of these promises has some aspect of communion with Jesus, a closer relationship, a closer fellowship with Jesus. Folks, you need to realize that the blessings of being a Christian are not just healing. It's not just financial well-being, financial provision. Thank God those things are a part of the curse of the law, and so therefore we're redeemed from them. But the blessing of being a Christian is to be close to Jesus. I think we lose sight of that sometimes because we get so busy Believing God for our natural circumstances and situations to change or whatever it is. And that's fine. That's good. Use your faith to receive anything and everything Jesus paid for. But the ultimate prize, the ultimate victory, the ultimate goal is the closest relationship with Jesus that you can possibly have. And that's what he says belongs to the overcomer, to the one that's victorious. Now, did the church at Ephesus repent? Did they overcome? Did they succeed in what Jesus told them to do? Did they take it to heart? Well, we don't know for sure. But we do know this. 
We know that after John was released from the Isle of Patmos, after the, the Domitian uh, died, and somebody came along to take his place, the next one came along to take his place. And John was released uh, uh, freed from political prison on the Isle of Patmos. We know that John went back to Ephesus. We know that he went back and resided in his hilltop home where he had been taken from a couple of years before. And we know this about John's later life. We know that he would have been about 90, uh, anywhere from 95 to 100 years old. Some records say that he lived to be 100. So that would have been, uh, uh, as well, obviously, it's a, a very advanced age. And he had lost a lot of his physical strength. And in his latter years, he was uh, uh, brought in not only to the church at Ephesus, but to other meetings with these pastors. Some of these seven pastors were certainly included, I'm sure, in uh, some of the meetings that he would have. Some of these were younger men, and there would be younger men that were in training, that were in training, that uh, uh, were being exposed to John and and um, uh, the last of the surviving twelve apostles. And so, when they would bring John into meetings, they'd have to carry him in. And when they would carry him in, they'd set him in the midst of the crowd, whether it would be the church itself or the smaller minister type meetings, whatever they might be. And they would, understandably so, everybody would be enwrapped attention to whatever he had to say now put yourself in that position if john the apostle john was still alive today the one that he said jesus loved the one that had one of the closest relationships with him of anybody here on the earth what would you want to hear from him man i'd want to hear everything i want to know about everything i want to know about healing the blind man i want to know about raising the dead i want to know about lazarus i want to know about everything tell me about the last supper Tell me about Jesus facing down the Pharisees. Tell me everything. Tell me everything you know. What was Mary like? Remember, John was given charge of Mary at Jesus' death. And Mary lived with him in Ephesus for many years before she died. I'd want to know everything, wouldn't you? Well, so would these other guys, the church as well as these other ministers. And they'd bring John and set him in the midst of these crowds. And John... Uh, obviously, because his strength was abated to a great degree, couldn't speak long. And so he would say, little children, love one another. And everybody just wait for something else. And he'd say, little children, love one another. Everybody's waiting. What's the next thing? What about all these things I want to know about? Little children, love one another. And the younger ministers would get really upset. Historical records identified that they'd get really upset. They'd say, John, why don't you tell us these things that we want to know? You're the last one that, uh, that, that bridges the gap between us and Jesus. Tell us about these things that we want to know. Why won't you tell us anything? Why won't you say anything in these settings and in these meetings except love one another? And he said, because that was his commandment, love one another. So obviously, the love of God had taken root in John and the message of love and the restoration of love for the church at Ephesus would have been pretty big on his heart, pretty big in his sights to whatever influence and whatever degree he had to to alter the course of the Ephesian church. What did they do? Well, we don't know for sure. There's no uh, historical record. There's no church tradition even that, uh, that identifies or points out the love of Ephesus being restored. But we can hope. But we've got a great example from the Apostle John. Little children love one another. Now let's go on to the church at Smyrna. 
Let's start in verse 8, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works. Now, we pointed this out before, but thy works is not the Greek. It's literally, I know the works of you. And the word know means intimate knowledge. Jesus has uh, become acquainted with their works, their particular works, through direct observation and inspection. He's walking in the midst of their church, literally. I know the works of you. I know the tribulation of you. And I know the poverty of you. But thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are of Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know about this. Uh, let me make a few comments, and I'll give you some of the historical uh, setting for the church at Smyrna so that this will make more sense to you. The word tribulation literally means to be crushed under a weight. The word picture is a rock of tremendous magnitude laid upon somebody until it crushes them flat. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure you're under. Now, you may notice that he commends them for their steadfastness. He commends them for being strong in their situations. But this is a church that he doesn't correct. One of the two, two of the seven churches he offers no correction for whatsoever. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there's no problem in the church? Probably not. It probably means that when somebody's under the greatest persecution and under the greatest pressure, that's not the time to tell them what to fix. So let me tell you about Smyrna, the city of Smyrna and how the church came about and and the setting that it's under. Uh, Smyrna first shows up in historical records in 600 B.C. It was a port city. It, uh, it's where the uh, modern-day city of Izmar, Izmir is in Turkey. It's uh, still one of the most beautiful ports, uh, port cities in Turkey. And it was very, became a very rich town, very rich city, grew to some size, uh, some uh, of its day. But through a series of battles, and it went into the hands of the, the Ionians, and then there was political conflict, and, and um, uh, the city was attacked many, many times. Over the course of several hundred years, it, uh, it fell into complete disrepair. When Alexander the Great comes along in about uh, uh, 350 B.C., 370 B.C., somewhere around there, uh, when, he, when he comes along, he goes hunting there. Because it's a desolate place. There's still the ruins, but it's all grown up and overgrown and so forth. And so he goes hunting there. It's an overnight trip. And so he lays down near where the, one of the ancient temples used to be. And he has a dream. And in this dream, these two twin goddesses uh, come to him and tell him that he's in a sacred place. And he somehow, and, and this is where the story gets kind of fuzzy... Because the two didn't have anything to do with the God that he attributed it to. But he said that these two twin gods uh, were um, uh, messengers from the god Sibeli, which means mother goddess. And so he determined that this city needs to be resurrected. This city needs to be restored. It needs to be brought back to its former glory and so forth. 
it takes uh, about 50 years for it to take place, and so it, it takes place uh, as much under his successors as it does under him. But a lot of money went into it, a lot of effort went into it, and, uh, and so they resurrected the city. And it was uh, written about in historical documents to be a fascinating, beautiful, unbelievable kind of place after they got it all done. Well, because of that, Sibeli became the patron goddess for the city. Now, the reason that's important is because it influences uh, to a great degree uh, the activities of the city and the people of the city against the church. And I'll explain why. Sibeli was the mother goddess, and she had a, a, a lover whose name was Addis. Incidentally, it happened to be her son, but you know that's just one of those sidelines of the Greek stories. Um, he fell into disfavor with uh, one of the other gods, and so he was castrated and bled to death. And because of that, I know you want all these details. <laughs> and because of that, they celebrated the day of his death with the day of blood, and it went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's interesting to me how the devil tries to copy God's day of, day of atonement stuff. Only there's no redemption in their stuff. It's just bloodletting. Well, because of that, because Sibeli was, uh, and the worship of Sibeli was uh, inundated with the slaughter and shedding of blood and so forth, that became the rule for the temple worship. Every day or every uh, year, they'd have this day of blood where there would be a sacrifice one main sacrifice made for the city, but everybody is obligated to make their own sacrifices of sheep and goats and whatever else they could find. Um, the worship of Sibeli, temple worship and, uh, on ordinary days, not the day of blood, but just ordinary days, was involved with self-mutilation and cutting themselves and stuff like that. Everything had to do with the shedding of blood. As a matter of fact, the priests, uh, or the, well, they call them priests, but I'm not sure if that really qualifies the priests were all castrated men who dressed as women. And so along with the bloodletting and the cutting of self-mutilation and all that stuff that went on with uh, the temple worship, the worship of Sibeli, there was also these guys would take hallucinogenics and uh, uh, tell people their fortunes and direct them and make contact with the gods. And so it, this, the temple in the city of Smyrna became a... a uh, a fortune-telling stand of great, great magnitude. And so it was, uh, <clears throat> I mean, this is not your everyday stuff, you know. And so because of that, the, the, um, uh, there was created in the minds of the city, the people of the city, it was created in their attitudes um, a careless or worthless value to life. And so they were willing to kill anything and everything to satisfy their bloodlust. For that reason, Smyrna is one city that the Romans, who were pretty into shedding blood themselves, had to hold back on the torture of the church, trying to, to settle the people down and keep them from slaughtering everybody. Now, that brings us to the church. When, um, uh, when the church was established, and we know when it was established. We don't know by whom, but it was established in those two years when Paul was preaching in Ephesus. It says he preached daily in the school of one Tyrannus. 
which was right next to the Jewish synagogue. It says that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord in the space of those two years. What that means is somebody, maybe Paul, probably not, but somebody during Paul's two-year ministry uh, in that uh, uh, Bible school, that daily Bible school, went out and evangelized these other cities. Now, we don't know if it was the same person that went from city to city or if there were different people that went from different cities uh, to different places and so forth. There's a lot of conflicting church tradition and ideas and stuff like that about it, so nobody can say for sure. But so the church would have been started somewhere around uh, 52 to 54 A.D. Now, here it is almost, uh, what would that be, 40, 41 years later maybe, uh, 40 to 41 years later when Jesus speaks to them. They're under tr- extreme, extreme persecution. Terrible things are taking place there. Now, there are a few things that um, um, that are, are worth mentioning, I think. And let's go back to the Scripture Again, starting with verse 8, And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. The first thing Jesus says is, death is not the end. The reason he says that is because many of them are being put to death. Death is not the end. I know thy works and thy tribulation, thy poverty. The reason he mentions poverty is, as was the case in many of these uh, persecution places or times of persecution the christians would very often often lose their livelihood now let me let me explain some things and i think i've mentioned some of this before but let me kind of gather up some loose ends about this too there were several main reasons why the church was persecuted first of all they were persecuted as atheists that seems strange to us because we understand that atheist means the a lack of belief that there is a god but it was different for the early church Because these pagan cities would have hundreds, sometimes thousands of pagan gods that they'd offer sacrifices to. Well, what that meant was in each home there would be certain statues or rituals or symbols or stuff like that that people would set in prominent places to show that this house is protected by this god or that god or the god of prosperity or whatever. They had gods for everything. But when people got saved really got saved you remember the story in Ephesus how that it took a while it took a very special event for them to give up some of these uh, symbols and and ritual practices and so forth but when they do the word of God mightily grew and prevailed so for a while the church at Ephesus at least kind of mixed pagan worship with Christianity but then they came to realize that Christianity was the, the great power the power in the name of Jesus was the greatest power and so they gave up the other stuff Well, as Christians would do that around uh, these other cities and churches in Asia, then uh, their friends who hadn't gotten saved would see that they were getting getting rid of these idols and, and symbols and whatever else they had in their house. And so they claimed that they are no longer believers in the gods. Now, to the unbeliever, to the pagan worshiper, worshiping Jesus is just like worshiping anything else. You don't offer incense to him. Or what do they know about how you worship Jesus? They find out that somebody says, well, I believe in Jesus now. That meant the same thing as saying, I believe in Baal, or I believe in Sibeli, or I believe in whoever else, Diana, whatever other God there was. So when people started removing these symbols from their homes and changing their lifestyles, 
in that they wouldn't go back and worship these other gods, then they were accused of being anti-gods. So they were pegged as atheists. Now, another thing, another reason that they were uh, uh, persecuted, and most of this has to do with ignorance, obviously, as you'll be able to tell, is they were accused of being cannibals. And this all goes back to the Lord's Supper. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. And so people in ignorance, not knowing, and, and please understand, the church services in that day were not open to the public so much in that nobody really wanted to go in and see for themselves what was going on. And so in many cases, depending on the level of persecution, these church meetings and fellowships would be in secret. And so because of the secrecy or because of the isolation, then there were a lot of rumors that would be started because of people not knowing. They might hear a little bit of something and put their own meaning on it or attach their own thinking to what it means or whatever the case might be. So they were accused of being cannibals. Well, obviously, this would be a threat to society because we're just killers. We're not cannibals, so we can't have that. Now, another thing that they were being persecuted over was uh, the church would call their church fellowships and their meetings love feasts. And so they were accused of sexual orgies during these things. They'd say when they, when they get together, all these terrible sexual things are taking place, which are so much different than the sexual orgies that are taking place in the Temple of Savelli, you understand. But we can't have that. And so they were persecuted over that as well. There are others, there's some other minor things, but one of the, the, one of the things that, uh, that I'll uh, conclude with as far as reasons for persecution is that they were accused of being arsonists. Now, when um, Nero burned Rome in, uh, I think it was 66 A.D., when he burned Rome, he blamed it on the Christians. And here's why he blamed it on the Christians. You remember in, in uh, Peter's letter to the church, he said that the church, that uh, the world would be burned up and consumed by fire. Nero took that. He was given this uh, advice and the idea from one of his council after he um, burned the city of Rome and, and um, was starting to take some heat for it. People were starting to suspect him of being the culprit. He said, the church, these Christians, believe that the world is going to be destroyed by fire. So they're acting out on that. They're putting that in practice. They're the ones that burned the city of Rome. Well, the people believed it. The Romans believed it, whether in reality that they re that's really what they thought or they just accepted or whatever. And so then it became spoken almost throughout the world, the known world at that time, that Christians were arsonists. They'd burn the city in a heartbeat. So you can't have them around. So there was a great deal of persecution that was taking place in uh, uh, in the uh, city of Smyrna, tremendous persecution, not caused so much by the Roman government, but by these worshipers of Sibeli. So he says, I know thy works and tribulation. Here's the, the pressure they're under in poverty. They'd lose sometimes their livelihoods, and that would cause them in many cases to lose their homes. Um, but notice what Jesus says. He says, but thou art rich. Folks, there's something greater than physical material wealth. We need to understand that. And those of us that believe in provision, the, the blessing, redemptive blessing of provision and prosperity, whatever you want to call it, we need to understand that. Financial well-being is good here on the earth to take care of our families, to be able to give and to help other people and to further the kingdom of God. But there are much greater riches than that. I know thy works and thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Notice what Jesus specifies. He says, I know that the Jews are part of your problem. 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. I've heard people say that if a person knows how to believe God, I mean, after all, the Bible tells us that we can decide when our time to go is. The Bible talks about, Paul talked about to the, writing to the Hebrews that some refused their deliverance and accepted martyrdom that they might have a better resurrection. So that means it's your choice. I've heard some people preach to, to the effect that if the, old, the early church martyrs just knew how to believe God, if they knew how to use their faith, then none of them would have been killed against their will. Well, if that's the case, Jesus must not know of that. Because Jesus did not say, fear none of those things. If you'll just learn how to believe me, you'll be delivered. He didn't say that. He said trouble's coming. One thing I've always found out about the Lord is he's real honest about what's ahead, even when it's not good news. Because he wants you to be prepared. Now, you can stick your head in the sand and try to deny it if you want to. That's up to you. That's your choice. But he's always real honest about how things are. So he says, fear none of those things. Don't be afraid of these things. Don't be afraid of the the tribulation, the persecution. Don't even be afraid of the Jews that are working against you. Don't be afraid of any of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. I guess that must be the unbelieving ones. No, these things are going to happen. Jesus said so. The devil will cast some of you into tribulation or I'm sorry, some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation, literally persecution, ten days. Now, the ten days is a mystery because the word day means period of time. It's usually the word that's translated to mean a 24-hour period throughout the Scripture. But it could also be used in other ways as well. Now, John Fox, in his famous Book of Martyrs, identifies ten different periods or time periods where the church was persecuted, starting with Nero and going on for about uh, 200 years to follow. And, and he focuses uh, on uh, the Roman Empire, 10 periods of persecution during the Roman Empire. And this would certainly fall into one of those. It wouldn't be the last one, but it would be one of, I think this would be uh, uh, the seventh period of persecution that he identifies. He might be right, I don't know. Because this is one of those things that the 10 days does not literally mean a 10-day period. Or at least if it does mean a 10-day period, we don't have information specifically about what he's referring to. Our information is limited. But he talks about a period of time. What we can conclude is he talks about a period of time, not forever, but a period of time that the persecution will last. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What is the Spirit saying to the churches? Well, the Spirit saying to this church, trouble's coming. Prepare for it. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Now, let me, uh, let me read something to you. One thing that we do have, and it's kind of interesting to me that how that uh, God put different people in the church at different times. Because the, we know a lot about the early church through Peter and Paul's uh, exploits and what the book of acts tells us about in the early days of the founding of the church we know a little bit about um, uh, what happened in john's day because of what he tells us and what he reveals uh, what is revealed to him by jesus and and the historical evidence that backs that up 
but the, the, what we might call the second generation or the first generation after the founding, the next generation after the apostles is what I mean. These guys were writers, and they kept a lot of historical documents and wrote things down for posterity and so forth. Now, did they know that the church would need this, or were they just inspired by the Holy Ghost to do it? I, I can't answer that. But we've got some tremendous historical documents that tell us about what the church was like in the, the, uh, later in the first and second centuries and, and so forth. Now, one of those things that we have is the martyrdom of one of the great leaders of the church is Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. Let me tell you what the, the, um, the background of Polycarp was. He was born in 70 A.D., the same year that Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. John moved to Ephesus in 67 A.D. So John's already been in Ephesus for uh, uh, a few years. And apparently Polycarp was born to a pagan family. And childbirth in, in those days was kind of different. If you didn't want your child, you just abandoned them somewhere. You could abandon them on the street corner. You could abandon them and take them out into the woods and let them starve to death. Life had very little value in pagans, the, the pagan culture. And so if it was a, uh, considered to be an inconvenient birth, just another mouth to feed type thing, then, then these children would be dropped off somewhere, anywhere, and abandoned. There was a Christian lady, a, a wealthy Christian woman in the city of Smyrna, that had a vision in the night where the Lord told her to go to the Ephesian gate. Now, the Ephesian gate, I told you that the seven cities of, of uh, Asia, there's a road that kind of makes a circular connection between all these things. It's not a, not a perfect circle, but it's a, uh, a connecting road anyway. And the Ephesian gate was the, the um, uh, southernmost entrance into the city that connected to this road from Ephesus. And so she had a vision and was told by the Lord to go to the Ephesian gate, and there she'd find a child. Well, she did. And this, uh, this baby had been abandoned, and so she took this baby. She realized what it was. She took this baby. She raised it. She brought it up as a Christian in a Christian home, and this was Polycarp. She named him Polycarp. This family was well acquainted with John, according to the, to, to the documents that we have. And so John became a friend of the family, and he knew this, this young man all of his life. Well, when John goes to the Isle of Patmos, Polycarp is already working in the church. He's about 25 years old, and he may have even been the pastor. We don't know for sure that he was the pastor at the time that, uh, uh, that this letter, the revelation was given to, to John, but we do know that he became the, the, the pastor or what they called the bishop of Smyrna at some point in time. We don't know exactly when that took place. What we do know is that he knew John for over 25 years, had a relationship with him for over 25 years. That much is in historical record. So this may be written to Polycarp, to the angel of the church at Smyrna. This may be written to Polycarp. If it's not written to Polycarp, he becomes the, the, the bishop of the church sometime later. Now, Polycarp was apparently uh, a personal disciple of John. John took a... Um, gave him a special place, much as Jesus had with him, a special place in his heart and a special place in his life. And you would imagine that he would have shared some things in his earlier uh, years. Well, earlier years, you know what I mean by that. 
John's already 70 years old by the time he meets this kid. But you, you could well imagine that there, there may have been opportunities for him to share information with him that would be out of the ordinary that, that might be personal and have a big impact on his life. Um, John goes off the scene. John finally dies. I say finally because everybody wondered, is he going to be alive till Jesus comes back, whenever that might be? And Polycarp becomes the, uh, the bishop of the uh, church at uh, Smyrna. Now, Polycarp is, is um, martyred in 156 A.D. at the age of 86. At that time, the historical records are such that the, the worship of Sibeli has increased more and more in the sense that of the, the extremity of the, the worship and the bloodletting and, and that type of thing. There's a stadium in Smyrna that for uh, uh, the ghastly things that took place and it rivals Rome and um, Christians are being offered under the, under the, the wild beasts in the stadium and so forth in whatever measure the Romans cannot safely stop. The Romans are trying to tame this stuff down, trying to hold it down. They want the games to go on. They want the people to be appeased. But when the people are screaming and crying out for Christians, the Romans are saying, well, wait a minute, let's save that for another day type stuff. The Romans are really trying to put the brakes on the persecution just because of the, um, I don't know any other way to call it, the bloodlust of the people. But there comes a point in time where the uh, in, in 156 A.D., there comes a point in time where uh, the idol worshipers, the temple suppliers of the idols and the silversmiths and all those guys, the trade guilds, they start saying that the church is cutting into their business. And the reason the church is cutting into their business, and please get this, folks, this is so important. It's not because of the witnessing of the church, the effectiveness of the witnessing of the church, although that may have been taking place too. They're complaining that because the Christians scoff and mock the pagans for worshiping their their gods. The confidence that the Christians showed in the worship of the one true God was that that had an impact upon the worshipers. It made everybody else doubt the effectiveness or the value of them worshiping Sibeli or these other gods. So the the first point I want to make about this, folks, is it always looks to us like the unbelievers, the wicked, are so confident in what they're doing, but they're not. And the more confidence you show in God's supply for you, in God's help and protection for you, the more it shakes their confidence in what they think they know. That was the biggest impact the church had. So there was a great Sabbath game set about it was on the Sabbath day. It means on a Saturday. It was actually Saturday, February the 23rd in 156 A.D. that they um, martyred Polycarp. What brought about that was that there were some special games taking place for the, for the previous couple of weeks. And the silversmiths, or the, the trade guild, we don't know exactly who they were, but these, these businessmen had convinced the, the proconsul, the Roman authorities of the city, that the Christians were creating a problem for them economically, and so they wanted to start throwing the Christians to the wild beasts. Well, because of these, these, um, the games of the feast or whatever it was that they were called, 
the, uh, the Romans said, well, okay, we'll let you have some of the Christians. And so they started throwing some of the Christians to the lions and, and these wild beasts and so forth. And there was one guy whose name was Germanicus. He was a young guy. And he was one of the ones that was going to be thrown into the, uh, to the lions or, or whatever the wild beasts were that they had. And so they would, they would taunt these Christians. Part of the, the fun of the games was that they wanted to see these Christians sweat. Of course, they'd always give them an opportunity to denounce Christ and be saved from, the, from, from death. But this one guy, they made a big show and a big spectacle of it. Here's a young guy. You need to realize you've got your whole life ahead of you. You're young. You're strong. There's all kinds of opportunities that you'll be missing out on if you go through with this. Just pronounce Caesar as Lord. And, folks, that was the big issue. That's why to the Romans, the church was considered to be an enemy of the state. Because if the Christians would not profess Caesar as Lord, which to the pagans just meant, well, we're worshiping Caesar along with the other 32 gods or whatever they have. But to the Christians, either Jesus is Lord or he's not. So if they would not pronounce Caesar as Lord, then they'd be killed. Well, that was his opportunity. They gave Germanicus this opportunity to, to renounce Jesus and proclaim Caesar as Lord and, and get out of this thing. Well, apparently the way this thing was set up, uh, uh, they were presenting Germanicus to the crowd and there was somebody that was, that was shouting all these things so that the, the stadium could hear, people at the stadium could hear what was going on. Germanicus was, a, was just out of reach of a lion that they had on some kind of chain leash or something like that. And when they gave him the opportunity to um, uh, renounce Christ, he grabbed the lion by the mane and drew it under himself, and the lion got him. Well, it, it, it was so amazing to the people, just absolutely amazing to the people. Everybody was stunned because of his willingness to give his life for Jesus, his Savior. Now, folks, there's something you need to understand about this martyrdom and the persecution and stuff that took place in the early church. It seems like a far and di- a different world to us. But that was the world they lived in. You need to understand this. Some good men will die for the truth. But nobody will die for what they know is a lie. And it had such an impact on the, the unbelievers that in many cases, these guys being martyred during their martyrdom. There are cases where the Roman soldiers would lay down their weapons and accept Jesus and walk into the same death, the same fate that the, that the person that they're witnessing had. That was the impact of some of this. There's a letter that was written from the church at Smyrna to the church at Philomelium, wherever in the world that is. This letter was written after the um, martyrdom of Polycarp. And it was to relate to the other churches. Here's how Polycarp, he was very famous, very well known, one of the early church fathers. And so when news, the word got around about his martyrdom and his death, everybody wanted to know the, the situation. So this letter was written. It's a matter of historical record. Uh, some people doubt it, just like some people doubt the, the, the truth of the word. Um, some people say, well, the, the crossing of the Red Sea and the plagues of Egypt didn't happen. That's just fairy tales. And some people say the same thing about this. I'm just going to tell you what the letter says. You decide for yourself. The first, uh, the letter, I'm not going to read the whole letter. It's too long. 
But the letter starts off with uh, talking about the, some of the other martyrs that have been uh, uh, offered up before the details of Polycarp are given. Let me read a couple of things about this. It says, And truly, who can fail to admire their nobleness of mind and their patience with that love toward their lords which they displayed? Who, when they were so torn with scourges that the frame of their bodies, even to the very inward veins and arteries, was laid open, still patiently endured, while even those that stood by pitied and bewailed them. But they reached such a pitch of magnanimity that not one of them let out a sigh or a groan escaped them, thus proving to us all that these holy martyrs of Christ at the very time when they suffered such torments were absent from the body or rather that the Lord stood, then stood by them and communed with them. And looking to the grace of Christ, they despised all the torments of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour. For this reason, the fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them. For they kept before their view escape from that fire which is eternal and never shall be quenched and looked forward with the eyes of their heart to those good things which are laid up for such as endure. I told you about Germanicus. The reason that's relevant to the story is when Germanicus offered himself, grabbed the lion and pulled it to him and offered himself willingly, the crowd was stunned. Everybody was stunned at his bravery, at his courage, at his willingness to die for, for Jesus, his Lord and Savior. And that stunning silence lasted for about 30 seconds. And then they started screaming out, away with the atheists, let Polycarp be tried. And so they sent word for Polycarp. They sent, uh, I say sent word, I mean they sent troops to find Polycarp. Now, when Polycarp... Uh, as I said, he was an older man. He's 86 years old. He was um, bishop of the church of Smyrna. Three days before they found him, before he, before, from what I understand, before he even knew that the word had been um, um, declared for him to come and be tried. Tried means set before, given opportunity to denounce Christ and claim Caesar as Lord. Uh, tried does not mean what it means today. So before they even issued the, the order to go get him, or before the crowd even cried for his, his head, he had had a vision. He had a dream in the night and a vision. And in that vision in the night, there was a pillow that he was laying his head on that was burning. So he awoke, awoke from that uh, dream or vision or whatever, and he told those that were with him, I must be burned alive. This was three days before they found him. Three days, or at least a period of time before even, he even knew that they were coming for him. In other words, God alerted him ahead of time. He had plenty of time to escape. He had plenty of time to get away. And when he told people of the vision that he had, they tried to persuade him, we've got to get you out of town. We've got to get you out of the country. We've got to get you so far away that they can't find you and never will find you so that we can spare your life. And he said, no, I'm not going anywhere. They finally persuaded him to leave the house that he lived in to go to somebody else's house that's just outside of town. So he did that. So the, the Roman soldiers are coming for him. And uh, let's see, how much of this do I want to read? They finally found him because they went to his house 
And one of the servants that he had in the house, who was a young boy, they tortured him until he told them where he went. And so uh, the church was really mad at the, at the young kid for betraying him, but he did it under torture, so, you know, whatever you think about that. Finally, he's found. Polycarp is found by his pursuers. His pursuers then, along with horsemen and taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of the preparation with their usual weapons as if going out against a robber. And having come about evening to the place where, you, where he was, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house from which he might have escaped into another place. But he refused, saying, The will of God be done. So when he had heard they had come, he went down and spoke with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much effort made to capture such a venerable, venerable means godly man? This is who we're after? This is the great enemy of Rome? The enemy of Smyrna? Immediately then, in that very hour, he, Polycarp, ordered that something be given to them to eat and drink, to be set before them as much as indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. That's his only request. He said, give me one hour to pray before you take me. They said, all right, we'll let you, we'll eat dinner and you, you pray for an hour. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours. He's standing up with these guys there praying for two hours. I'm assuming that's not in other tongues. To the astonishment of those who heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. So they put him on a donkey, take him back to the city. The proconsul, the Roman authority there for the city, meets him outside of the town, transfers him to his carriage, chariot, whatever he was, and taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored him to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and to make sure of safety? In other words, they're saying they don't want to do this. The proconsul, the Roman representative of the city, is saying, Look, Polycarp, what's it going to hurt? Just, just offer incense to Caesar. We'll make it easy. What's it going to hurt? He wouldn't answer him, and finally when he did answer him, he said he's not going to take their advice. So then by the time they got to town, they changed their attitude toward him because they had to appear to the people to be carrying out the wishes of the people and the desires of Rome. So it says, Now as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw, no one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to your old age and other similar things according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say away with the atheists. Now, remember, the atheists were considered to be Christians. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, and waving his hand toward them, while with groans he looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. 
Then the proconsul ends urging him and saying, Swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? That sealed his fate because he's denying that Caesar is his king. And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since you are vainly urgent that, as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, To you I have thought it right to to offer an account of my faith. For we are taught to give all due honor to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these, talking about the ones he just called the atheists, the ones he just referred to away with the atheists, but to these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account of me. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent. But he answered, call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said, I will cause you to be consumed with fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you wait? Bring forth what you will. While he spoke these and many other like things, he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace, so that not merely did it, let me get this right, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled by the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium thrice, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jews, who dwelt at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or to worship the gods. Speaking thus, they cried out and besought Philip the Asiarch, to let loose a lion upon Polycarp. But Philip answered that it was not lawful for him to do so, seeing the shows of wild beasts were already finished. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one consent that Polycarp should be burned alive. This then was carried into effect with greater speed than it was spoken. The multitudes immediately gathering together wood out of the shops and baths, the Jews especially, according to the custom, eagerly assisting them in it. Now, folks, I want you to realize we know for a certainty that this was on the Sabbath day. So the Jews are willing to break their own Sabbath rules to participate in the death of Polycarp. And when the funeral pyre was ready, Polycarp, laying aside all of his garments and loosening his girdles, sought also to take off his sandals. This was an unusual thing for him because the church so revered him that whenever his sandals were ready to come off, they would race to his feet to be the first one to touch his skin. Immediately there, then they surrounded him with those substances which had been prepared for the funeral pile. But when they were about also 
to fix him with nails. That means nail him to the stake. He said, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will also enable me without your securing me by nails to remain without moving in the pile. They did not nail him then, but simply bound him. And he, placing his hands behind him, and being bound like a distinguished ram taken out of a great flock for sacrifice, and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God, looked up to heaven and said, here's his prayer. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers, and of every creature and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost, among whom may I be accepted this day before you as a fat and acceptable sacrifice, according as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained, have revealed beforehand to me, and now have fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise you for all things, I bless you, I glorify you, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. It's a good way to go out, folks. When he had pronounced this amen and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire. And as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we, to whom it was given to witness it, beheld a great miracle and have been preserved that we might report it to others what then took place. For the fire, shaping itself into the form of an arch, like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. And he appeared within, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceive such a sweet odor coming from the pile, as if frankincense or some precious spices had been smoking there. At length, this went on for some time, at length when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire. They commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a spear. And on his doing this, there came forth a dove and a great quantity of blood so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between the unbelievers and the elect. In other words, they're used to burning people in the fire, folks. Not just Christians. They're used to burning people in the fire. But when the Christians were martyred, it was a big, big difference. I'm reminded of when Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples. And he asked Peter, he said, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. He asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. The first time, well, the first two times he said, then feed my sheep. Last time he asked him, he said, Peter, do you love me? 
the Greek points out that, it, that there's a greater emphasis on the last one. It's almost as if the word's not there, but it's almost as if he said, Peter, do you really love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I do. He said, feed my lambs. Now, we read that from a standpoint, and it's usually taught from a standpoint that Peter was a leader in the church, and so that's what Jesus was setting him up for and showing him how important it was for him. But if you were Peter, I wonder if there's any way you could keep from remembering the three times that you denied him on the night that he was taken. Peter, do you really love me? Do you really love me? I'm sure Peter had no idea what really loving Jesus meant. It's easy to say, oh, yes, Lord, I love you. But you read stories like guys of, of guys like this. Makes you ask yourself again, doesn't it? Do you really love me? Now, again, it's easy for us to say, well, nothing like that would ever happen in our day. And you may be right. That may not be anything we ever have to face. But the question isn't whether or not we will face it. The question is, could we face it? We're so busy trying to get God to do things for us that I think in many instances we overlook what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering things. We'd like to be able to say that we could do the same as these men did, these martyrs. And be men and women strong in the face of death and refuse to deny you. But Lord, that ability comes from living a life of service to you, a life of sacrificing our own desires, our own intents. be followers of you willing to do your will no matter what the cost let us be willing to do that Lord let us be willing to serve you no matter what it means strengthen us Lord by your spirit so that Jesus becomes the only important thing in our lives. Let us be counted worthy of the blood of Jesus. Now with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. It's times like this that we can make decisions that change your life. Only you know what that decision is that you need to make. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that one's easy. Jesus died for your sins. He's raised again so you can be born again. You enter into that 
fellowship. You enter into the family of God by confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you've never done that, today's your day. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If you'd say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Would you raise your hand, please? Yes, ma'am. Are there others? Pray for me. I want to know for sure that when this life is over, heaven is my destination. For others, the decision may not be so simple. There may be things you need to let go of. There may be things you need to turn away from. There may be things that you've known for a long time that you're supposed to do, but have never done. What is overcoming in your situation and in your life? For them, he that overcometh, I'll give the crown of life. What gets you the crown of life? Obedience to his will. If you're here this morning and you were once saved, you know that you asked Jesus into your heart. But you've gone your own way. You haven't served him. You haven't followed him. You may be what the church calls a backslider. But you want to turn things around. You want to return to him. And you want it to be like it was when you were first born again. If you'd say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to return to Jesus. To be my Lord. And not just my Savior. Would you raise your hand please? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. Okay. Good. Yes. Thank you ma'am. Are there others? Yes ma'am. Thank you. Others? Tired of playing games with God? I'm going to make it real this time. Make it right. Once and for all. Yes. Thank you ma'am. Good. Good. Are there others who will join these three or four to make things right once and for all? All right, heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you lifted your hand on any of those invitations to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, to return to fellowship with Him, and if you really meant business, I want you and only you to open your eyes and look up here at me. I've got some specific instruction for you. Amen. If you really meant business with God, you want us to pray for you, to lead you back to that place where you're right with God. There's a gentleman standing right over here by the door. He's got his hand up. He's going to lead you to the prayer room. The reason we're going to ask you to go to the prayer room is because if we asked you to come up to the front, you might be conscious of people behind you and not really realize the importance of what you're doing. So we're going to take you to a private room. It's just off the lobby, right outside the doors. If you came with somebody and you want them to go with you, tap them on the shoulder. I'm sure they'd be glad to go. 
We don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable in there. It's a place of safety. So gather your purses, your Bibles, your books, whatever you brought with you. If you will make your way out to where this gentleman has his hand raised, he's going to lead you to that prayer room. If you meant business with God, if you were serious when you raised your hand, please go now. Thank you. Thank you. Now the rest of you in the congregation, let's all stand. I want to do two things. First of all, I want to pray for the ones that went to the prayer room. And secondly, we want to commit ourselves to the Lord anew and afresh. Let's pray for them first. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for those that have chosen to make a decision, chosen to commit their hearts and their lives to you. We thank you, Father, for restoring them to fellowship in the precious name of Jesus. If they don't know they're saved, Father, give them the assurance once and for all that Jesus is their Lord and that heaven is their home. Now, Father, I pray for each and every person here in this place under the sound of my voice if they're not located in this building. I thank you, Father, for the desire that they have to to serve you, to follow you, to lay aside every weight and the sins which do so easily beset us and to follow you and only you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to each one of our hearts to show us what adjustments we need to make, what things we need to drop off, what things we need to give up, what things we need to add to make our relationship with you what it should be. I thank you, Father, for quickening each and every one of our spirits to make us worthy that we would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That we would be worthy of the shed blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made. That we would be so committed to you, Father, that if our lives depended on it, we would be just like Polycarp and many of the other martyrs and stand strong in the face of death and say, I am a Christian. Jesus is my Lord. Lord, help us to realize the seriousness of the days that we live in. The work of the devil all around us. And the importance of the power in the name of Jesus to overcome. Let us be a people that convicts the world through our strength of faith, through our confidence in you. We pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. You can agree with that prayer. Say amen. 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 Stories like this convict me. I mean, they draw me even closer. I start looking for ways that I can be closer to God and be more committed. I think we all should. Don't you? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Say it with me. The Lord is good. And his mercy endures forever. Amen.